Welcome to part three of our multi-part series on the U.S.-China relationship. Today we'll be talking about the lessons of Lucidides from ancient Greece. And we had an interview with Dr. Andrew Novo, who is a professor at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. But before we get to that, this is a bit of a different episode in the sense that we don't really focus so much on the U.S.-China relationship, but rather looking at case studies about why great powers go to war, how do great powers reach the decision to go to war, and are there ways to avoid that conflict? And it's always challenging in many circles of international relations, international studies. There's always a clash between sort of the realists, idealists, kind of these different philosophies about how international systems should function. And what's quite interesting, if you look throughout history, you see an immense amount of examples or case studies to examine great power conflict on a massive scale, such as the world wars, or a smaller scale, such as the Peloponnesian Wars, or another example from the intro world I would think of was ancient Rome and the Parthian Empire which pretty much went to war on and off again throughout each other's history over various things, such as the province of Armenia, over different disputes in the Middle East. And again, it was this kind of East versus West clash that is quite unique. But going back to Thucydides, this is kind of something that's been revived in the last couple of years. I mean, if there's a scholar that probably really revived it, it would be Graham Allison, who is at Harvard, and he wrote a book dedicated to this idea of Thucydides' trap, in which Thucydides kind of writes about, you know, the start of the Peloponnesian War, which was a basically a war between ancient Rome, or not ancient Rome, ancient Greece and ancient Sparta, which were the two preeminent Greek city-states. And it pretty much, uh, Sparta ended up winning the war, but it destroyed the city-states and it wrecked ancient different economies, their militaries, and sort of paved the path for ancient Rome to eventually incorporate most of Greece into the Roman Empire. And also it really paved the way for Alexander the Great and his father, Philip, to defeat and take Greece. And really after the Peloponnesian War, ancient Greece never really reached the level that it had been in terms of prosperity, both economically and in terms of its ability to project power. The challenge with Thucydides and when we're talking about great power conflict is I think scholars very often try to draw straight parallel similarities between different case studies. The challenge with that, in my mind, is that every single case study is different. Every single era in which great powers fight or have conflict or rise is immensely different. You can certainly draw similarities between ancient Sparta and ancient Athens and the way they went to war, how for a while they were friends because they had to fight the Persian Empire, which was the much larger land power to the east of Greece and had tried to invade numerous times throughout history. But as we kind of go advance kind of farther and farther towards modern day history, I think scholars as well try to, you know, when we're examining different case studies, it's that these power dynamics are immensely more complex than people might think. And I think the simplification of these case studies often overlooks the reality of these international systems. One example that comes to mind that Graham Allison focuses heavily on is kind of this idea of Britain and Germany, their naval race, and the lead up to World War I was a huge factor in the start of that war. And that's a perfectly reasonable point. 
I think the challenge is, if you actually look at the way World War I started, it was the assassination of the Austro-Hungarian heir to the throne. So for examining Great Britain and Germany and the way they go to war, well, then what does that have to actually do with the start of the war? In addition, you have to examine the actions of France, the actions of Russia to really understand, well, how does it end up in a conflict between Britain and Germany? Because Britain was the last great power to enter the war, besides the United States, the last European power to enter the war. And the reason they did was the invasion of Belgium. You know, And while they certainly would have entered the war if Germany had just invaded France, that was their justification. It was not, we're going to war to defend France, who was our ally. We're not going to war with Germany because they have a really big navy. It's, we're going to war because we're going to defend Belgium. And I think, again, and another big challenge I think is in terms of case studies, for example, the world wars are the last time that great powers truly went to war with each other in the terms of total war. And you can certainly trace a variety of reasons why that happened. And again, there's a variety of reasons why it hasn't happened, mainly being the advent of nuclear weapons, the idea of mutually assured destruction. But the revival of great power conflict with China and the United States means that scholars are trying to look towards history for case studies. But I think the problem really is that you can certainly take examples but you can never truly translate that to what is going on right now. For example, Dr. Novo in his book, The Restoring Thucydides, he sort of argues that most people look at the Peloponnesian War as this bipolar system, ancient Athens, ancient Sparta. Whereas in fact, it was a lot more complicated than that. You had many more Greek city-states, which some would what you would consider middle powers. You also had the Persian Empire, which was also kind of the preeminent land power in that region at the time. So these regions are, and these systems, again, are very, very complex. I think you see that during the Cold War, and I think it's a lot easier to argue the bipolarity of the conflict. But at the same time, you had a bunch more nation states that didn't really participate or sort of operated under their own system. And that's different than I think the way most people look at the Cold War. And I think it all relates to today with the US and China and this revival of great power competition. Well, what does that actually look like? Because it's not over territory. It's not really over primacy. That's an ongoing argument right now in the foreign policy community is, do we really want to achieve primacy in the Asia Pacific? Should, is it just to support our allies? Those are the sorts of questions we're navigating. But the reality is it's a very complicated region. You have the United States and its sort of group of allies, South Korea, Australia, Japan, and then you have China. And what you have in between is a vast array of different countries. India, the Philippines, Thailand, uh, Vietnam, all countries that are trying to navigate this sort of geopolitical chess game that is going on between the United States and China. And really with what's interesting when great powers, one of the things I think people look at is how do great powers read each other? Do they read their intentions with hostile intent? And the vast majority of the time they do. And that's how oftentimes great powers stumble in the conflicts or they go into conflict that they don't necessarily want. If you asked anyone in the US or Chinese government, would you want to go the war with each other? The answer would be 100% no. And yet the possibility is still very real. And that's one of those questions, I think, that in this age of this multipolar system, it makes it all the more complicated. 
So that's just some background on kind of the episode. We're mainly focusing on Thucydides. Again, Dr. Noble will kind of explain who he was and we'll kind of get into that area in particular and draw lessons from them and how they relate back to the US and China. So we hope you enjoy the interview. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Andrew Novo. He's an Associate Professor of Strategic Studies at the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. He's an expert in ancient and modern European history and strategic studies. He also teaches for the Johns Hopkins University Program in Global Security Studies in the Georgetown School of Foreign Service. He recently co-wrote Restoring Thucydides, Testing Familiar Lessons and Deriving New Ones with Dr. Jay Parker. He's also a regular contributor to the DC Tank Circuit presenting at the Brookings Institute, the Atlantic Council, and the European Institute of the Mediterranean. He also lectures widely in Europe and the United States, including at the University of Oxford, the NATO Defense College, the University of Torino, the University of Macedonia, the United States Military Academy, as well as the United States Naval Academy. So welcome on. Thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. And just to start, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is your favorite and how do you become interested in Thucydides? So I think the, the ancient world still has a special place in my heart. So ancient Greece and Rome are still my favorite subject of, of history to research and talk about. It's always been a particular favorite of mine, and that goes back to when I was a child even, and I used to go to museums or see films with the ancient world. And of course, um, then when I started to travel, that really heightened my interest in it. Thucydides, of course, is one of those core texts that everyone reads when they study the ancient world. So it's a classic, and I became interested in it as soon as I started to read it. As I read it, and then as I reread it, I started to appreciate how much it has to offer across a truly enormous variety of subjects. And I think that that's what has held my interest over the years. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in the field, whether it's teaching or researching kind of the ancient world? So when you talk about the ancient world, I mean, classical philosophy and classical history are, of course, extremely useful learning tools in the modern world. But it's sometimes a challenge to convince people that they remain valid and valuable after two or two and a half thousand years have passed. And can you just briefly describe for our listeners who CDs was and why is writing in particular just being constantly referenced lately? So Thucydides was a member of the ancient Athenian elite. He was a very wealthy citizen of Athens, full citizen of Athens. He was a politician and a military commander, elected the office of military commander at some point. He is an interesting figure because he wrote this one kind of magnum opus, this one great book, which is actually unfinished. And not only is it his only book, but it sort of serves as our only primary source or our only primary source for this great conflict in the ancient Greek world, the, the Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta at the end of the fifth century. And so his book is so useful because it's full of these very, very, very insightful comments about power, about great power competition, about hegemonic war, about politics, about human nature. And so because he was writing about an event which was so momentous, but he nevertheless also brings extremely important insights across a very wide variety of subjects to it. And those are still useful for us today. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you point out in your introduction in the book that I thought was interesting was that people seek to impose their biases and perspectives on Thucydides. How do you think that impacts the way people look at him? Is it because they look at his work to kind of confirm their views or how does that aspect work? 
Well, Thucydides is such a powerful and persuasive source that people have a lot of incentive to use him and to misuse him, right? It's almost like, well, if I can quote Thucydides to support this position, then QED, I've demonstrated my argument and my conclusions are above reproach because Thucydides is supporting them. And so he's used that way, like a lot of great books, actually, in order to support preconceptions. It's a little bit easier, we might say, to misuse Thucydides in the sense that precisely because he writes about so many different issues, you might be able to sort of pull him in any direction you want to prove your point. But just because he wrote about these different issues doesn't mean that he can automatically be used to support whatever position someone has. Mm -hmm. And outside of Thucydides, I know you mentioned that obviously his writing is the only primary account of the Peloponnesian War, but is there other ancient work that international relations scholars or people that study security studies can look to for different examples? Absolutely. I mean, two of my favorites are Polybius and Plutarch, who come a little bit later. I mean, Polybius is writing in the second century BC and Plutarch in the second century AD. But like Thucydides, for example, Polybius was exploring the clash of great powers. He was exploring alliances and alliance dynamics. He was exploring sort of major wars within the international system. So his work remains extremely important and useful. A Plutarch, for his part, is excellent at addressing sort of human nature, aspects of leadership, how individuals respond to challenges. And so those are two of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And just to shift back to Thucydides, What do you think are some of the misconceptions about him and really kind of the age and system that he lived in and wrote about? Well, there are a couple of sort of obvious ones. I mean, one of the misconceptions that we talk about in the book is that his age is perceived as one of systemic bipolarity namely bipolarity between Athens and Sparta. And so in the book, we try to challenge that as something that is a bit anachronistic, but also inaccurate. Like this this theoretical construct of bipolarity can help us understand systems that may be bipolar. But because Thucydides' system, we argue, is not bipolar, it doesn't really provide much help in explaining it. So I think that'd be one sort of misconception about his age. A misconception about him might be that he was terribly embittered by the horrible things that had happened to him. And so you can't really rely on him as a source. Obviously, I'm sure he was not particularly happy to be exiled from Athens. And like with any historian writing about a period, especially a period they lived, comes to it with biases. And so as a historical reader, you have to be sensitive to the potential for those biases. But he was still an extremely well-informed researcher and writer who was trying to present a complete picture as far as possible. And what do you kind of discern about how he presents the concept of power in his book? And do you think there is any relevance in terms of modern views on international relations or security studies? Certainly. I mean, power is one of the central themes of Thucydides' work. And one of the things that I think is so compelling in his book is that he demonstrates a multifaceted sense of what constitutes power. And so in international relations today, particularly through some of the work of the late 20th and early 21st century. You have people like Organsky, who are theorists of power, Joseph Nye, of course, with the concept of soft power or smart power, where the discipline is trying to think about power in more nuanced ways than simply men and ships or aircraft and missiles and things like that. You can go all the way back to Thucydides and see a really multifaceted sense of what is power. Because for Thucydides, he's very well aware that power is not just men and ships. 
And of course, Sparta and Athens both have a lot of men. Athens has more. Sparta and Athens and their allies both have ships. Athens has a lot more. But Thucydides tells us about the power of alliances, for example, the power of friends, and not just the way in which they can augment the power of, let's say, the central state, the core state, but also in which the ways that they have power to influence policy and maybe co-opt the dominant state to act in ways that the ally prefers, even if the ally is less powerful. Geopolitically, we see the power of reputation, for example, which is an interesting point as well. We also see the power of individuals to shape policy, the power of individuals to inspire nations, the power of individuals to dominate debate, the power of individuals to win debate through the power of their rhetoric or the images that they can evoke. And I think this may be a little more indirect, but he encourages us to explore the limitations of power as well. The famous Melian dialogue, the subsequent Athenian failure in Sicily cause us to question what we might call the power of power, right? So if there's a paradigm out there which says, well, power just rules, and as Thucydides is often quoted from the Million Dialogue, that the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must, there's also a warning there that if you put too much faith in the power of power, you may end up harming yourself in the long run. Mm-hmm. And people often view the Peloponnesian War, which you mentioned, which was this great conflict between Athens and Spartas, which were the two preeminent powers in Greece in the ancient world. What sort of lessons does he offer or write about in terms of alliances and diplomacy? So the war, as you said, is primarily between Athens and Sparta, but it's certainly not exclusively between them. And so alliances and diplomacy are essential not only to the course of the war, but also to its outbreak and its conclusion. I alluded to before the way in which the desire of allies sort of shape the policies of the sort of major power. And we see in the run-up to the war, the desire of Sparta's ally Corinth for security encourages Sparta to have a more aggressive policy toward Athens than they otherwise might have done on their own. And so both Athens and Sparta, though, recognize that they're going to need support from allies and they're going to need friends if they hope to win this war. So Sparta, for example, from the very beginning of the war, tries to recruit ships from Italy. They also try to reach an anti-Athenian alliance with the Persians. Eventually, toward the end of the war, in the last 10 years of the war, they're actually able to achieve this. But this idea that you're going to have to think about alliances and diplomacy is very prominent in Thucydides' work and in his account of the war. At the same time, one of the other interesting facets, if you study the war as a whole, is that we see that diplomacy doesn't stop simply because fighting starts. And so what we see happening at various times is powers leaving the conflict or powers entering the conflict or powers re-entering the conflict. Athens and Sparta conclude a major peace in the middle of the war, and they hope it's going to last for 50 years. Of course, it doesn't, but it's sort of interesting for us to think about when we think about a big conflict, we think almost of a conflict that has a start and the end, and they were just completely at war for the whole middle period. Whereas in reality, in this case, the violence itself had stops and starts. Mm-hmm. In addition, most people attribute the Peloponnesian War as kind of a clash within this bipolar system. But was this system in which the war was fought more complex? Could it even be argued that this was a multipolar system in which this war was going on? Well, that's certainly our argument in the book, that it was a multipolar system. And of course, there are sort of different layers to how you consider the polarity. I mean, we make the argument, first of all, that you have to consider Persia as a major power. Certainly, Persia is a great power in its own right. And so you would also have to consider a power like Syracuse, which of course defeats 
Athens and the Sicilian campaign. Some scholars try to sort of have it both ways and say, well, it was a bipolar world within just the Greek system. And so that would exclude Italian powers like Syracuse or Persia as as an Eurasian power. But even then, you still have the enormous importance of city-states like Corinth, which, as I said a little bit earlier when we were talking about bipolarity, the ability of another power to sort of direct policy and be considered a major ally in a way that you would go to war for it kind of undermines the theoretical construct of a bipolar system. Because in a bipolar system, the idea is there are two powers that are so superior to everyone else that they essentially don't care about what happens to the other minor powers in the system. And so Corinth's ability to influence events suggests that it would be a great power in its own right. Mm-hmm. And how important was domestic politics and foreign policy? Did those two aspects intersect with each other very much? Did Thucydides write a whole lot about this kind of aspect? Absolutely. The domestic politics is a key part of the story he's trying to tell us. And some of the most insightful parts of his work is when he kind of takes the lid off the debates within various societies. I mean, obviously, he had firsthand knowledge of a number of key debates in Athens, but he also gives us a look at key debates in Sparta, in Syracuse, and in other places as well. Thucydides, after all, was a politician. He was elected as a military commander. He was a member of the Athenian elite, which, of course, was was highly politically active. He was also punished through domestic politics with exile. So he was keenly aware of the role of domestic politics. And I think that One key takeaway about domestic politics that we have from his work is the role of choice, that he's not presenting things that are predetermined in any way, right? And domestic politics is all about choice. It's all about political leaders being able to convince members of a society to act in a certain way. And Thucydides shows us, first of all, that these choices are not foregone conclusions. There are always debates, and debates are swayed by the persuasiveness of speakers, by the persuasiveness of their arguments, sometimes by the emotions of the crowd. And so different policy choices reflect priorities and needs and the fears of different actors. There isn't a lot that's a foregone conclusion, and human choice really plays a central role in this. That's the core of politics, is human choice. And as you mentioned earlier, Thucydides didn't actually finish all of his writing. What sort of questions do you think he raises that we scholars or students are left to explore? Well, there are any number. I mean, this book tries, for example, to talk about the issues that he explores in terms of great power competition, the rivalry between states, and how and why they act the way they do. Then again, this is something we try to do in the book. He provides some very useful kind of synoptic analysis. For example, the famous line that, you know, the truest cause of the war is the growth of Athenian power and the fear this causes in Sparta. But for me, that's an invitation. That's something that's left for us to explore in the sense that we have to go deeper into the meaning of power. What aspect of Athenian power is it that causes Spartan fear? And then we have to look more deeply into this concept of fear, right? I mean, Thucydides also creates this famous trinity saying that the conflict is caused by fear, honor, and interest. And that's, of course, great. And you'll see a lot of international studies textbooks that say, yes, and conflict is caused by fear, honor, and interest. That's fine. But he's raising these issues in a way that leaves us a lot to explore because we then really have to start digging, okay, what do we mean by fear? What do we mean by honor? How do we define interest? 
And so that's where I think the book is trying to make a contribution by encouraging people to look more deeply at these issues that he raises. I mean, another issue, obviously, that he deals with a great deal that is still a very fruitful subject for scholars is the role of democracy in war and how democracies fight. I mean, when you have a society that's based on voting and sort of people waking up and seeing how they feel and deciding on a policy and then debating it and voting on it in this very public way, in a much broader way than a lot of systems do even today, there's an important discussion to be had there about how those two things of waging war or pursuing security, how those things cohere with a democratic regime. And just ask some concluding questions. Some scholars have made the comparison or come up with this term called Thucydides' trap, which relates to U.S. and China in this sort of great power competition and inevitably going to war. Do you think this is an accurate assessment or people draw too simple of lessons to try and make this comparison? Sure. I mean, the Thucydides trap is based on the idea that when a rising power challenges a ruling hegemon, there's likely to be conflict. And part of the discourse around it tries to have that threat of conflict, that likelihood of conflict both ways, right? Because on the one hand, as you said, they want to make you almost feel like it's inevitable or make you feel like it's almost inevitable so that you get nervous and you buy the book and you have the conference and you think about how terrible this is going to be. On the other hand, they don't want you to think that it's inevitable because they want you to buy the book and hold the conference and discuss how we can avoid it because everyone knows it'll be a tragedy. And as I said before, Thucydides is not about inevitability. One of the translations of Thucydides is a mistranslation by saying that what made the war inevitable was the growth of Athenian power and the fear this caused in Sparta. So Thucydides doesn't say it's inevitable. He uses a word in ancient Greek, which means what made the Spartans feel that war was necessary. So this is the Spartans making a calculation that war is, is necessary rather than sort of falling into it accidentally. I think that there's a whole host of dangers with the Thucydides trap analogy or with the broader analogy of the United States and China, not least of which is that the analogy very quickly becomes muddled in the sense that, well, okay, so the United States would be Sparta as the dominant power and China would be like Athens, the rising power, except that doesn't work because America is also supposed to be Athens because we're the big democracy and the naval power and the trading state and China is the land power and the more authoritarian state like Sparta. So immediately the sort of analogy starts to break down when you scratch the surface. You also have to look at how it ends, right? I mean, if the United States is Sparta and China is the rising Athenian power, then in one sense, that's very good for the United States because Sparta won the Peloponnesian War and Athens lost. And the war ended with Sparta changing the Athenian political system and tearing down its walls and having a banquet with uh, flute girls. So the problem with the analogy is that it, it breaks down fairly quickly. And I think the other problem with it is that it doesn't really provide us much utility, right? Because the premise of the Thucydides trap is when a rising power challenges a ruling hegemon, look out, there could be trouble. And okay, thanks. That is an insight. But if I'm a policymaker, that's not a sufficient insight because just telling me look out is not particularly helpful. I need to know what I should look out for. I need to know what is really likely to potentially cause a conflict. And I need to know what's the kind of conflict that I'm likely to lose. So unless you can satisfy all of those conditions, then the analogy is less helpful. In essence, what we try to do in the book, actually, is to say, okay, let's put the generic watch out to one side and let's dig a little more deeply and say, let's ask instead, what am I supposed to watch out 
for? What kind of conflict are you telling me I'm likely to be involved in? And what are those things I can do to try to make sure that I'm on the winning side? And so that's kind of my little view of the Thucydides trap, so to speak. Right. And just an addition, do you think that the complexity, as you kind of mentioned, of this system in the ancient Greek world can sort of help us find similarities in the international system that the US and China are currently trying to navigate? Yes. I mean, we should be careful of analogies, but at the same time, we should look for similarities and we should be aware of the aspects of international politics that don't change. There is going to be great power competition. A great power competition is going to take many different forms. There's going to be an economic element to it. There's going to be a political element to it. There's also going to be a domestic political element to it, which is something that Thucydides, you know, he does a wonderful job getting us to think about the fact that it's too simple to say there's Athens against Sparta. Because time and again, when we hear debates in those states, we see that there are Athenians who are very hawkish towards Sparta. And they don't want to have any concessions towards Sparta. And they have arguments to make about why we should avoid concessions to Sparta. But at the same time, you have within Athens a group of people, political leaders, members of the elite, military leaders, who say, no, we can find a way to coexist with Sparta and we can make it work. And it's exactly the same in Sparta. There are plenty of Spartans who say, well, yeah, the Athenians don't live the same way we do, but we can find a way to live with them and get along with them. And that's better than war. And there's a compromise out there that'll make us all happy. And then there are Spartans who refuse and want to go to war. And so one of the good things that Thucydides does is he forces us to confront the reality that it's never so simple to sort of anthropomorphize states and say, well, Sparta does this and Athens does that. No, the 50 plus one majority of Sparta on this day decides to do that. And then the 50 plus one majority in Athens on this day decides to do that. And tomorrow they could decide to do something different. And very often there are even cases in Thucydides where the very next day they do decide to do something different and they reverse the initial decision. So that element of complexity remains in the international system today. And that carries through when we see, for example, the point that we've mentioned a little bit before, the flexibility of alliances, the idea that I can be your enemy today and then I can try to ally with you tomorrow if I think that my interests are being threatened. The fact that I could be your ally today and then drop out of the conflict tomorrow if I'm not happy with the way it's going. So I think that those are elements that remain important. And I think a final lesson for the United States and China that we can see in in Thucydides is how states do sometimes end up at war, even when it doesn't seem to have been their primary choice, right? That if you had just sort of come out to them and said, well, do you want to go to war? They would have said no. But a series of events over time narrows, kind of funnels decision makers, right? And narrows the scope of options available to decision makers to the point that they are left in a situation where war is a likely outcome. And I think that that would be a very dangerous outcome, obviously, in the case of the United States and China, and something that we could start working from now to avoid having decision makers have their choices restricted and constrained and kind of funneled toward a conflict. Mm-hmm. And just as a final question, overall, what do you think the legacy of Thucydides is? Do you think that his writing is going to continue to remain relevant today, whether it's about diplomacy or great power conflict or any of the other topics that he explores in his writing? I mean, I think Thucydides' legacy is well assured. I mean, he was read throughout antiquity and dropped off a little bit 
in the Middle Ages, although obviously has endured all the way to the present. And his sort of prominence on curriculums of study in everything from classics to political science and political theory today means that it's, you know, it's unlikely that his legacy is going to be diminished, at least in the short term. And I think that that's fitting because it does continue to remain relevant. And when you read Thucydides, I mean, certainly when I read Thucydides, I'm kind of constantly amazed at the, the line that it'll just pop out. You say, oh, well, yeah, that's very true. He'll say things like, well, nobody likes war, but people are not going to be kept out of war if they think they have something to gain from it. Or democracies drag their feet on doing the right thing. And then when they're in absolute desperate situations, they've already tried everything else, then they'll do the right thing. These things kind of, at least to me, they resonate. I say, okay, yeah, I can see an element of truth in that. And so I think that for those reasons, his writing will certainly remain relevant, remain relevant going ahead. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Novo. I definitely did. I think, again, the ancient world is often underappreciated when it comes to kind of the examination of both grand strategy and great power competition, because I think most people look at the ancient world and they think of ancient Rome, for example, as a great power. Another one that comes to mind is from Asia is like the Han Empire, for example. And the other challenge, I think, too, is because of that Western-oriented view of history, I think that there are a lot of examples from uh, ancient Asia or in ancient China about great power competition as well. There's a ton of work done by ancient Chinese historians, by philosophers. Obviously, Sun Tzu wrote Art of War, which is, I think, very underappreciated in terms of studying the way people think about war, particularly from Asia think about war, which is a lot different from the way I think people from the West think about it. And this all, again, begs the questions. And one of the things is that you should probably examine everything. And this is also to say that you can look at to the ancient world for examples, but at the same time, I don't think you can draw straight lines to that as I think Dr. Novo points out, for example, when people look towards Thucydides' trap and try to make the analogies between US and Athens and China and Sparta. And very quickly, you can poke holes in those arguments. And that isn't to say that it isn't relevant. There are absolutely lessons you can draw with that. I think the unique challenge is you can't necessarily draw a straight line from point A in ancient Greece to point B in the US-China relationship. I just think that is very difficult. But combining all of that, it's to say that there are lessons about statecraft, about greater power competition that we can learn from Thucydides. And I definitely recommend reading Dr. Nova's book because he really gets to kind of peels a layer deeper than a lot of people who write about Thucydides, which again is sort of this surface point A, the point B about different examples in international relations. But there are a lot of lessons there, again, about diplomacy, about the intersection about foreign policy and domestic politics. And I think one thing that truly did strike me is ancient Athens had the contend of being a democracy to go to war. It's one, it might be the earliest example where people, and again, it wasn't the sort of representative democracy the United States has in a lot of ways. But again, there were elected officials that had to contend with decisions that could cost them politically or were making a decision as a whole, as opposed to Sparta or any other of the Greek city states that were ruled by a king who was ruling and could do whatever they wanted. That is an example of, there are great lessons from Thucydides, Thucydides about the challenges of democracy and war and why 
democratic states are hesitant to go to war. There's a reason that I think democratic peace theory comes up. It's this idea that democracies tend to not go to war and they tend to not go to war with each other. It's again, part of this, I think, a big motivation for U.S. foreign policy, particularly after World War II, with this idea of creating capitalist democracies across the globe, continuing with this idea of if we can model nations in our image, then we're not going to go to war. And people, I think you can point to, for example, Japan, and you can look to Germany, for example, that were rebuilt after World War II with the idea of having democratic capitalist societies. And now Germany is one of our closest allies in Europe, and Japan is one of our closest allies in Asia. So there's certainly, I think, a legitimate argument for that. But again, I think you can also argue that U.S. foreign policy has gone wary as a result of that. You can look to Korea, for example. You can look towards the Vietnam War. You can look towards the Iraq War. So while there are also successes and failures, all of this circles around to this idea of, well, what should the United States be doing? And at the same time, China is asking, well, what should we be doing? And again, when we look at great power competition, more often than not, great powers stumble in the war. I think it's very rare that countries intentionally go to war because war is so destructive. It destroys their societies. It oftentimes hurts their economies and it stops the growth of their population because men are going off the war, all of that. And this is suffice to say that I think that's the real challenge. And Graham Allison brings this up in this book where he basically lays out five scenarios. Here's how the US and China can stumble in the conflict, whether it's an accidental ship collision, whether it's a miscommunication and things accidentally escalate, all those sorts of things. And those are all, and I think Daniel Kurtzfellan brought this up back in our previous episode, which is this kind of hope and this kind of fear that I think has gone on with the US-China relationship. And I think we're in that period right now, but that isn't to say that in the future that can change. I hope it will certainly change. So that's pretty much everything that I had. I hope you enjoyed this sort of historical background and kind of the intersection between ancient Greece and the U.S.-China relationship. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.